Today we are in Romans chapter 7, and before we get there, if you know anything about the letter of Romans, you will know this is a tricky passage. And, um, and before we get there, I just want a little bit of a catch-up from last week. If you didn't happen to be here, please download it. John was absolutely excellent. But you'll find that Romans 7 is primarily to do with the law. And Romans 6, which John spoke on last week, is to do with our relationship with sin. That's what John spoke on. And Romans 6 reminds us that salvation is to be experienced. It's to be lived. The gospel transforms our lives. The gospel, our, our response to Jesus Christ is not the finishing line. It's the starting place. It's not the destination. It's, it's the embarkation. It's where you begin. And the significance of that, the significance of that, interestingly enough, and um, Paul highlights in that chapter 6, is baptism. And he says, remember your baptism. It's funny that, isn't it? He doesn't say, remember your conversion. He does not say, remember the day you were filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't. He earmarks in a very, very practical, pictorial event, your baptism. Remember your baptism. You died. To sin. So your baptism is, is very, very important. Don't you know, he says, he starts that line in chapter, he said, partway through chapter 6, don't you know your old life, enslaved to the slave master of sin, was buried? Your old life died. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, if that's hitting the spot for you, we are doing uh, exploring baptism next week. Uh, be in the second meeting. Look, if that's you, then this is part of your walk in Jesus Christ. Because when he speaks to the church in Rome, he assumes all have been baptized. All have been baptized. So I would, uh, you know, if that's where you are, pitch in, please. Let somebody know, either at the welcome desk or at uh, reception on your way out. So, because we have baptisms coming up on the 20th of September. September. So he says, don't you know, it, Christians, it is important how you think. Your thinking is really, really important. The possibility is, is that you would, you would gain your understanding from your feelings and from your experiences. Uh, you should know by now that your feelings are extremely fickle. And if you're trying to make the gospel connect to your experience. It's the other way around. Our experiences connect to the gospel. That's, that's what it is. We don't try and manipulate the word of God to our experiences. So how you think, don't you know? And that's where he starts in chapter 7. So he comes another question. Don't you know? It's important you know these things. Now, now in chapter 7, and we're going to be reading this all the way through. I don't normally do this, but I just see no other way around it in chapter 7. You'll see what I mean as we read it all the way through. 
And uh, he constantly was referring to the law. So when he's talking about the law, this is the Old Testament law. This isn't UK law. This isn't the European law, which some of you, I'm sure, will be pleased to know. This is the law. This is the law given to Moses, handed to Moses for the Jewish people, given from God. It was a gift, the law. So you will find this constantly referred to. So let's come here in chapter 7. Here we go. Can we pop that up? Okay. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to, once, to, to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet, but sin. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death for sin. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. You're still here? Okay. So, now we're going, verse 14. Glad you're still here. Stay in there. We know that the law is spiritual. 
but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, I, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. But it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, and I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but it's sin living in me that does it. I told you this was a tricky passage. Okay? So, uh, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I, I delight in God's law. But I, I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Well, I would, like, you're not, I would like to pray at this stage, and I'm not sure if you would like to pray for me, or if I should be praying for you as we come to this. But let's pray, shall we? Father, we pray that uh, from this passage, we pray not just for understanding, we pray for life. We, we, we don't want to be we don't want to be academics here, Lord. Purely academically minded. We want it to produce life. So, Lord, we pray that you would help that happen in Jesus' name. And all God's peoples did say, Amen. All right. Tricky passage, and normally I try and shape it into sections. Um, but uh, today, I'm just not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to endeavor to work backwards. It just seems to me, because um, it, it, it's, it is a tad complicated. Because on, on one sense, the, the law on one hand seems positive. He says it's spiritual. But then he says, and yet it arouses sinful passions. So, you know, it, it is, there, is a, there is a complexity. And not only that, Romans 7 is also controversial. Uh, there is considerable debate. I do not, for all you theologians out there, um, you know, who are really keen on this stuff, I do not have time to work all through this. And, um, and don't come rushing up at me either with your Bibles in your hands and your latest viewpoint and so forth. Um, well, you can if you like. Anyway, the thing is this. There is a big debate over the passage from verses 14 onwards. There seems to be a dramatical change in what the way Paul writes. And so the question is, who is the I that he is talking about? And he, decide, he, he seems to describe uh, an experience, or he, he describes an experience in which he seems utterly unable to resist sin. Did that come across to you? Utterly unable to resist sin. And um, it says, for, for I have, for one of the things he says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. It's as if giving in is an in inevitability. 
And then in verses, verse 19, he says, the evil I do not want to do, I keep doing. Now, believe me, time restricts me for unpacking all of this. I'm, I'm sorry for, for, for that. And there are so many different views. I, don't know, I wonder if there's as many views on this as there is on the second coming. Well, that's, uh, but anyway, there are, I'm just, Gordon Fee argues that Paul is describing a believer looking back as to when he was an unbeliever. And there may be a point to that. And um, others say that Paul is describing his own personal present struggle. So all of that is his own personal present struggle. But I have a real problem with that, you see. Because in light of what he's written in, verse, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, I think, how can that be? Because in chapter 6, he says, you died to sin. You've been set free from sin. In chapter 5, he talks about ruling and reigning in righteousness. Well, how can that be that he inevitably can't do the stuff? I mean, that doesn't seem to add up to me. It doesn't seem to make sense. So, personally, this is where I lean. I lean that Paul... You're still with me here. I just, it's to get the context here, I... Uh, my leaning is that Paul, who is a Jewish convert, and he's describing the particular journey and struggle of a Jewish person. Because you've got the law, the law, the law, all the way through this. You can't miss that. And don't forget that there's a considerable contingent of Jewish converts in this church. In addition to that, some of the Greeks who have got saved were probably already in Judaism before that. So they know this stuff about the law. It really makes sense to them. So they're well versed in this. So my leaning is that he's describing the experience of a Jewish person up to a certain point and their relationship with the law. And that their desire is being to please God and honor him through the law. To live right and adhere to the law. It's absolutely crucial. Because why? Because the law is a gift from God. And to follow all the points of the law. And this is what it is like to follow the law. That's my leaning. Now, you could very well say to me, Neil, if, if that's the case, this is 21st century Britain. I'm here in High Wycombe. How does this apply to me now? And I think that's a fair question. But I think there are parallels. If you are here, whether, or whether you are a Christian or not, and you have a longing to be a better person than you are, and there are moral and ethical standards you aspire to, and, and you have this desire you want to change, and you want to have a bigger nature than the one you already have, then this is relevant for you. Do you know, and if in your background you endeavored to tick certain boxes but were so aware of your failures and you did the New Year's resolutions time and time again and you couldn't even live up, not to God's law, but your own, this is relevant. And then for some, for some, you know, you may well have been in a church where the predominance was about the rules. It was about the rules and that you ticked off the rules. 
I read of a recent denomination, I'm just looking it up for uh, research purposes, and, um, and, and the number of rules, you could see how, the, how this denomination worked. <laughs> it sort of worked by rules. That was the highlight of it, rules, not, not the relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and if that's some of your background, then this may well be relevant to you too. Now, for a Jewish person, they, they, if this is a Jewish person, they've sought God through the Lord. And they've sought Him earnestly. And they've ad- adhered to the Lord. And so the message of grace appears to diminish the Lord, which was a gift from God. And so Paul says, verse 12, so he says here in verse 12, he says, but the law is, is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. You know, the law is morally and ethically, God's law is morally and ethically good. It was a guide, a standard for the Jews. This law protected them. It was a safeguard. It shaped them as a nation. However, the effect of the law is not always good. So Phil Varley uses this illustration of a train track. And that the law was like a train track. And just set your wheels on the train track and it'll, it'll take you in the right direction. It'll just take you in that direction. Just set your wheels on the whatever it is express and uh, it'll just take you and that's what you have to do. So you have to keep your wheels on the track. And he says this, he says that along the way, instead of it becoming a horizontal track, they changed it and it became a vertical one. And it became one where you, to be accepted by God, you were climbing a ladder rather than running on a track. And the ladder was ticking the boxes and doing this and doing that and doing the regulations and the rules and, the, and so forth. And so it became, that became your acceptance and your recognition to God. So, you know, in the process of all of that, it just became, it, it became a, a ladder of merit. Now, rules have limitations. Rules have limitations. And the problem with rules is you keep having to make new ones. Just in the news, isn't it? So the tax rules for major companies like Amazon and so forth, the tax rules, they, they're having to make new ones because people are always finding out loopholes. Isn't that so? People, they, children learn this at a very young age. Children learn the loopholes at a very young age. I was in a lounge, and a child is lying on the floor, and the adult says to the child... Don't go near the fireplace. The child is lying on the floor on the foot. The, the, the legs are leaning back. And no word of a lie. The child looks at the adult in the eye and moves the foot back towards the fireplace. And uh, no names here. Notice. And so, um, and then the Adult says, dear, some dear, uh, dear, uh, don't go near the fireplace. And the foot continues to move near the fireplace. 
until, staring the adult in the face, the foot has touched the fireplace. But of course, it isn't the foot, it's a shoe. You said, don't touch the fireplace. I'm not. My shoe is touching the fireplace. <laughs> rules. I mean, rules. You know, when I was at school, you know, kids used to be, kids used to, you start running down the corridor. Don't run down the corridor. But I tell you what, you saw an incredible walking speed. <laughs> you thought they were going for the Olympics. Rules. You see, rules produce more rules. That's the problem. And that's exactly what happened with the Jews. There were rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. So you can understand the statement, under the law. Oh, the light of this, under the law. It's a miserable place to be. You know, it reveals, laws, uh, rules like that reveal rebellious nature. So he said, verse 9, he said, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. I have a confession. I have a confession, and um, it's... Could we just put that first? Um, wet paint signs attract me. I'm attracted to wet paint signs. I, I saw one recently. I saw a wet paint sign. And I, listen, I was not interested in that door, lamppost, whatever it was. I was not interested until I saw the sign. And then I was drawn to the sign. And especially when they say, do not. Can I? Do not. So it's not just advising me, it's just telling me. And there's something, and I'm thinking, here's what goes through my head. I'm thinking, is it really wet? I bet that notice has been there for days. And nobody's moved it. And now my curiosity is really a light. What do I do? And I am drawn to these things. And it's almost as if I can't resist it. Do not touch. I want to touch. We had some painting done in our house recently and the doors were painted. And I was told explicitly, do not touch the doors for 24 hours. So the next day, I'm looking at my clock. I can't believe this. I'm looking at my watch thinking, 24 hours. I wonder if it's dry after 23. <laughs> it's just, I'm sorry, I, this is just a bit of my, bit of my makeup. It's like I can't resist. Is it really wet? Yes, it is. <laughs> this is the best sign I've seen on wet paint. If you just put that. Oh, you can't see it. This is, so this is a cat stuck to a door <laughs> with, with the sign on it, get over here and unstick me, Brainiac, or whatever it is. So uh, I, I just like that. Uh, no, this cat, anyway, lovely. And you can't pick this up on the... CD or download or whatever. Anyway, 
they attract me. Your friend says, your friend does this. You're walking down the street and your friend says, uh, don't look behind now. <laughs> I didn't want to look behind. I never wanted to look behind. But now, I do. The law has come. The rule has come. Don't look behind. What's behind? So um, I do that with Des. Don't, don't turn around. It's just like, it's like a red rag to a ball. Don't turn around. <laughs> just does it. Just, it's like an automatic reaction. Rules bring out the worst in us. And Paul finds the same. Look, he says, verse 7, he says, look, look at this. Verse 7, he says, um, is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the Lord. You know, so the law highlights these things. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law said, do not covet. Now, my friends, the, the law is good, yes. But the thing is, it doesn't help you resist sin. It doesn't. It just highlights it. It doesn't give life. Let's <laughs> see. It brings death. And it's interesting that Paul chooses this one about coveting. You could think they can tick off the boxes. All right? I haven't stolen. No, I'm fine with that. I haven't, done, I haven't down, bowed down to any idol. I haven't done that. I haven't murdered anybody. I felt like it when I was on the aircraft. And the chap moved his seat. So far back, he's almost in my lap. Murder did come to mind. But... Why is it I always get people like that? Why is it? I would, on the flight out, somebody wants to sit in my lap, move their seat back. They go, I'm going to eat my meal off the top of their head if they're not careful. Do you know what I mean? And then on the way, on the, on the way back, I've got the shortest guy in the plane. The shortest guy. It's not like he needs leg room. Boom. Back out of the Great. So anyway, uh, murder? No, I haven't done that. Thought about it. Uh, so externally you can tick off the list, but you get to this one, and to covet means to be discontent with what God has given you. To covet incorporates comparisons of others and them and what they have and their abilities and their gifts, and why am I not like that? Coveting brings grumbling and self-pity the coveting thing undoes everyone. I think that's why Paul picks this one up. The commandment doesn't help, though. Don't covet. It doesn't say, it, does, it doesn't help us. It just highlights the problem. That's what the law does. And so back into, at the beginning of the chapter, he explains here what it's like. And he describes the relationship with the law like a marriage. So he says, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband. Here it is. See? Uh, for example, by law, verse 2, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. The problem with this marriage is there's no way out. This husband, the law, is always right. He's always right. Now, before you preempt any of this, he doesn't think he is always right. The law is always right. 
the law is always right. It's always correct. It's never wrong. How do you live with someone like that? Don't put your hand up, please. All right, so the law says it as it is. It's plain black and white. It doesn't give an inch. It highlights every mistake. The law runs its finger across the windowsill and holds up the dust. The law. The law highlights the spelling mistakes on the shopping list. The law. The law highlights grammar on your emails. The law never lifts a finger to help. It just tells you what the problem is without giving you a way out. It's relentless. The law, Paul is saying, is like this every day, every week, every year. It's relentless. It's the traffic warden who's waiting till you are one second past. And don't we love them? I really feel sorry. I think they have a hard job, to be quite honest. But no, this law swoops when you're one second past. He's the speed camera that gives you no leeway whatsoever. The only way out of this marriage is death. I'm not dropping any hints here. I don't understand that. It's no wonder that Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You don't have to be Jewish to understand this. I know we have a struggle, my friends, but you don't, you don't have to be Jewish to understand that. Anyone who has endeavored to come after God and to follow God based on their own merit knows that they've fallen well, woefully short. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say this. He could tell if somebody was struggling with the whole matter of grace, he would point blank ask them, are you a Christian? And if they replied, well, I'm trying, he knew they hadn't got it. Following Jesus is about trusting, not trying. Following Jesus is about relationship, not laws and rules. You know, if you're trapped in a cycle of appeasing God through your own good works, I tell you, this is a deathly marriage. I don't know how you do this. And that's what Holy, you need a rescuer. When it's like this, you need a rescuer, you need a savior. Jesus changes everything. Hallelujah. Jesus fulfilled the law in every single way. He delivers us from the penalty of the law. He's the most perfect man. And he's treated like the ultimate lawbreaker. He's nailed to a cross. Cursed so that you can be blessed. Punished so that you can be forgiven. Rejected so that you can be accepted. If you give him everything, my friends, give him everything, he will not let you down. He will not let you down. He will radically change your life. He will radically transform you from one degree of glory to another. I think that's a very interesting line. If you're in for a speed change, it's from one degree of glory to another. Hallelujah. This is the gospel. It's good news. Don't you know you died to sin? 
buried an old way of life. You died to the Lord. That marriage is over. It no longer owns you. You're a new person in Christ. You're a new creation. You belong to Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? That is the truth. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord.